Hello, everybody. You are listening to Action Line on KINY. It is a bit uh, bit foggy out there, but we make it work. And joining me in the studio today, of course, I am your host, Jordan Lewis. But joining me, I have Senator Jesse Keel. Senator, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Jordan. Good morning. It's good to have the filter back so that we're not going to get burned by that solar radiation. Exactly. You can't have too many solar rads. It's never a good time. If you need any evidence about how dangerous rads are, uh, go watch Oppenheimer. Go watch that. You'll you'll learn the danger of radiation again. I, I got to see Barbie first. We'll do Oppenheimer next. Well, no, the rules is you do Oppenheimer first, you become crushed by the weight of your own actions, and then you go hang out and party with Barbie for about two hours. Oh, I'm going to do this backwards, huh? That's the, that's the, if you're doing Barbie first, that is a, that is a play to get really happy and then go see Oppenheimer and get real sad. <laughs> but that is, that is a choice. Now, beyond us having a brief little fun catch up, there are a couple of big topics I want to hit with you. The first one is one that you brought up to me just a little bit ago that I thought was quite interesting. You went to a DOT presentation about drones. Yeah, the folks at the South Coast region, that's that's our folks here in, in Southeast, and then they've got some of the, the Prince of Wales, or excuse me, Prince William Sound uh, coast communities out the chain. They are really doing remarkable things with some of the highest technology uh, drones, unmanned vehicles, that uh, that are available out there. At one point in the presentation, somebody said, well, why don't we get all the regions one of these? And the guy said, because there are only 10. If we had the money, we couldn't buy another one. It doesn't exist. They are doing a remarkable cutting-edge stuff, and it's everything from using these uh, highly specialized drones to map out the avalanche chutes that DOT's got to respond to, right? The, the days of having a howitzer over on Douglas to shoot down the, the avalanche in Thane are long gone. Um, I guess Uncle Sam is not real happy having a bunch of howitzers around. Um, and and preparing for um, options that they have then to, to control those on days you can't fly a helicopter up there all the way up to uh, imaging uh, emergency road projects. You know, up on the North Slope, they had giant giant flooding in the big spring melt this year, and they were bringing in dumps full of rock to try and just have a road for the truckers to get to Prudhoe. Um, And they could use these drones to image uh, the work twice a day, no pilots required, nobody taking their life in their hands, flying the North Slope in stormy seasons, um, and, and image it to the less than two inches resolution, right? They they knew exactly how the work was going, what was working, what was washing away. And then project after project uh, in between. And what's really impressive, Jordan, is that these are just our, our Southeast Alaska folks. They're located by and large here in Juneau. They got some South Coast folks elsewhere who were, were at the meeting. And they're thinking up new things to do with them all the time. It's It's tremendous. And I just wanted to flag that that, that leadership out of, out of our region in DOT is going to bring benefits statewide. No doubt. And it sounds quite interesting. I think it's a good thing you mentioned, you know, there is no other drone. That's, those are all of them. And I think sometimes when folks hear about, you know, these kinds of projects, they're like, well, why don't we just spread out? Well, if the resources aren't there, you just, you just can't do it. Yeah, this this uh, and, and they have a, several different flavors. Some of which are are uh, much more commonly available. You know, you can just take a camera up and take a picture. Um, but but some of these, the highest tech ones they have, you know, have these uh, advanced base stations. So that yeah, the drone has the ability to sort of know get a GPS fix, but that's within several feet. 
but you've got this base station that's stationary, has a powerful antenna on it, and then it can communicate with the drone with absolute, I mean, just tremendous precision. So it's, uh, it's phenomenal what they're able to do and what they're working on. And we've got some tough terrain, uh, and we've got a lot of places and times where um, it, it, you'd, a pilot would be taking their life in their hands, uh, and you can send something up without a human being on it um, and, and only risk a little, bit of, uh, a little bit of technology that you can get back sometime later. Yeah. And no, I think it's interesting. I think I'll have to note that as something to talk with uh, DOT about sometime this month, because I do need to get back and touch them, but trying to get them to come on to the show as well. Now, another big topic I want to hit with you real quick is the, the STIP, the, the recent STIP things. Now, just to remind folks who may not be, the, be aware, what exactly is STIP and how is that expanding or changing right now? So it stands for Statewide Transportation Improvement Program. <clears throat> And when, uh, when you're going to use federal transportation money to build ferry docks and highways and uh, airports and all the things that we use Uncle Sam's transportation money to pay 80-90% of the cost of, um, Uncle Sam would like you to have a, a formal plan. Um, and, and the rules for these things are incredibly complex. We've got folks at the statewide planning division who are, have worked their whole careers to know how to do this. Um, but it is the guideline to how that money can be spent. And sometimes for folks like me in the legislature, where we uh, appropriate the money and we represent our constituents, right? And our job is to say, okay, this project is the most important one in our region, and I want to compare it to the most important one in your region, and let's put the money into these. Uh, and, and, and maybe not that one over there. Um, and, and, you know, those, some of those tough decisions about priorities. Well, with the STIP, there's an extra step because DOT has to put it in there or I can appropriate the money for it and they can't spend it. Likewise, uh, if, if we uh, line out the projects in an appropriation bill um, <clears throat> uh, and, and a STIP project isn't in there, they're going to have a hard time spending the money on it. And we try to keep good communication, right? The last thing we want is for federal transportation money to go unspent and get uh, parceled out to some other state. But it's it's really important that um, that we work together on those things, and and so the the STIP is a, a multi-year plan, uh, and it it guides where that work is going to go, where those construction dollars are going to go. They're now they're constantly working on it, right? As soon as they adopt one, they basically start public comment on the next amendment for it, because things break, or you know uh, mountain slides mountainside slide and you know get shorter mountains get shorter and rounder it's what they do and sometimes priorities just change you got to be able to move um so the stip is the newest stip is out from a multi-year look um and it's it's in pretty good shape for a lot of things that matter to us um the the investments in the ferry system are mostly looking good there's one project down there that i don't think makes a lot of sense but but really a lot of using that federal money to modernize to make our ferries more efficient we're we're light on some of the highway projects here in in southeast um there there are a few uh, and some of them are very important there's one in our district in skagway that's been a long long time coming they really need under state street um but something that's missing from that is that egan yandukan intersection that intersection by the fred meyer um, <clears throat> that that has no alternate way around it. When there's a crash there, it backs everybody up. And we have had all those problems with left turns across traffic. 
Um, <clears throat> and, and it's a really important one to work on. There was a big process, big study to, to pick a uh, preferred alternative. There, there's going to be a little sort of uh, first step, half measure, see if we can help a little bit coming up soon. But, but the big project um, to give us another way around, to take care of some of those left turn safety issues, that's not in the plan right now. And we've got to get it in there. So that's something that you'll see me working on over the next little while. Okay, and and I think it is good to be here in progress on that intersection, especially considering you know the number of different accents we've seen there over the years. Now there was two things I want to circle back to with what you were saying. First off, what is the project you, you thought kind of didn't make a lot of sense within STIP? Oh, oh, the ferry project. Yeah. So you know we've got the two day boats, right? The the Hubbard and the Taslina. Um, and they were built uh, at <laughs> a different and difficult time. Um, uh, so that they were supposed to make very short runs um, and and uh, with a specific design for a road that didn't get built. Uh, and and so um, they have been modified a couple of different times in a couple of different ways. Their doors have been added. Different doors have been um, uh, sort of taken out of the plan. Um, the Hubbard now has crew quarters on it because one thing they can't do is they can't go from Auk Bay to Haines to Skagway and come south to Haines again and back to Juneau in a single crew workday. Um, and, and that's a Coast Guard safety thing. They'll only, it's sort of like truckers can only drive so many hours in a day. Well, ferry workers, you know, the captains and the engin- engineers and the mates and the uh, uh, sailors can only work so many hours in a day for safety. We, we went ahead and we put crew quarters on the Hubbard. Now, with that, she has all the functionality of like the Leconte or the Aurora, right? She can just run up and down Lynn Canal all day long. She can go to Huna, she can go to Angoon, come back Pelican, right? And you put two crews on her so one can work while the other sleeps, and you don't have any safety concerns. That's expensive, right, to basically pay almost twice as many people um, for every run as you would otherwise have to if you could do it as a day boat. There's no need to spend 27, 30, I don't know how many million dollars to weld crew quarters on the Taslina. It actually doesn't make sense. Remember, you increase your operating cost by almost doubling the crew. But there's other options that can let your runner as a day boat. Under the federal transportation bill, every state's going to get one full electric ferry. Now, if we put that ferry in either Haines or Skagway and just do the short run, 17 miles. It's about the shortest run uh, Marine Highways does, shorter than the Latuya's run from Ketchikan to uh, to Metlakatla. Then you can do the Taslina just from Auk Bay to Haines and back in one crew day. The other thing that's out there is Cascade Point Ferry Terminal. If DOT moves forward on that for at least seven, eight months of the year, you, you wouldn't even need the electric boat. You could just run the Taslina from Cascade Point. Haynes, Skagway, Haynes, Cascade. There's options out there that don't require spending tens of millions of dollars of money that you don't have to spend. We've got so many needs with the ferry system. Don't spend this on just, you know, a, a cool idea. Because what'll happen, Jordan? And it's been coming for a while. They finally said it out loud. With crew quarters on the Hubbard, the next time either the Aurora or the Leconte breaks down and has a major, major, major overhaul need. You know, they got wasted steel, they got serious, they're old boats in salt water. They, they're they not going to fix it. They're just going to put the Hubbard in as a replacement. Now, 
That's not great for service. It is great for the system having a newer boat instead of an older boat. They're more reliable. We can keep to our schedule with newer boats. That's important. We're going to have to do that. But we don't have to do that with the Taslina and have a service problem with fewer vessels on the runs when you can just make either of the other two Lynn Canal fixes. And then, the you know, the Taslina can still go to Gustavus and back in a day with a stop in Angoon, or, uh, excuse me, in, uh, in uh, Huna, right? She can still do her day boat runs to the villages around here. She doesn't need crew quarters for that. So that's not a smart way to spend $28, $30 million. Gotcha. Well, we are going to have to move into our break. When we come back, I'll have more questions for you about a whole variety of things. You are listening to Action Line on KINY. And welcome back to more Action Line on KINY. Now, uh, joining me in the studio, I have Senator Jesse Keel. And as we were wrapping up the last uh, segment, we were talking a lot about the the STIP and the different sort of projects going on there. One thing I did want to circle back to before I forget it, because it is still in my mind, and I want to hit it before we get to our next topic, is the so there's the the proposal for the Mendenhall, the, not the Mendenhall, the Juno Douglas Crossing. Would that fall into the STIP area or no? It it does, yeah, because because we'd be using federal money for a huge huge piece of that. Um, and that is in there right now to use all federal money to finish the planning and uh, and environmental uh, permitting type of process. And then the construction money they have in their furthest out category, right? So that's in the in the well someday category. And and what'll happen with that, of course, is the whole process is still going on. So you know, do you pick this crossing site or that crossing site, this style of bridge or that style of causeway, or do you choose no build? Right? All those things still on the table. So they've put it in to spend, and, and Senator Murkowski has gotten us a couple of earmarks or congressionally designated spending, it's called now. She has, which I think is, is fair, actually. Let me put it this way. Congressional, or Senator Murkowski has put money f- toward getting us to a point of decision on that. Um, and so, so when we're at that decision point, then if it's to build and we'll have a better cost estimate, then they will change the next step or the next amendment after that to reflect how you start, when you start, how do you phase it, right? It won't be, a, won't be all the money in one year, I guarantee you that. No project that big is a single-year thing. So it's, it's in there, but they're looking out quite a ways toward the idea of constructing it. Okay. I just want to make sure I asked you about that because it was lingering in my brain. I realized I didn't ask it in the first half, so I wanted to make sure that we hit it. Now, the last big topic, which is really two things, uh, both circle around the Department of Education. And the first one I want to do is just check back in on something we talked about before, which is really about funding. Because I know recently the Juno School District actually sent a letter to the department about some of the some funding things and concerns. Yeah, yeah. The um, it, This is a very strange one. The department doesn't seem to have read their own regulations, uh, and they're, they're getting grumpy with uh, now school districts across the state for following the rules, uh, which is not usually a reason that you get grumpy with people. Um, but this is a very, very strange case. Um, and it's a, a case of the inter, uh, overlap between something the, the feds do and something the state does with federal money. But... Um, this is a this is a Governor Dunleavy created problem. If he had not vetoed half the education increase, we wouldn't be looking at this problem that the Department of Education and Early Development is thinking about. And here's how that works: when you've got a huge amount of federal land or or federal offices and things um, in your area, 
you can't have local taxes on those, right? Because locals can't tax Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam provides uh, for education what's called impact aid. Oh, we have an impact on your tax base. We'll give you a little aid to make up for it. Um, maybe not the same as you'd have gotten in taxes, but some cash. <clears throat> so when the state of Alaska looks at how much we send to school districts, we say, okay, we're going to consider almost all of that impact aid money as though it was your local tax dollars. And so you'll provide it, and we, the state of Alaska, will not. That's been in the formula for a very long time, decades now. Um, and, and so when you think about the most remote rural areas that don't even have taxing power, that's their local contribution. Um, when you think about places uh, that do, like Anchorage or Fairbanks, have big military bases, well, that's a piece of um, what they then effectively put into their schools. Uncle Sam will only let you do that if you don't have a huge spread between the richest districts and the poorest districts. Actually, that's not true. Between the 95th percentile richest district and the 5th percentile poorest district. So you can actually have some really, really dirt poor districts as long as they're not 5% of the kids statewide. Um, and so a couple of years ago, Uncle Sam said, you know, it looks like you guys broke that, that disparity. You, you had too big a spread between the well-off and the not well-off. Now, it wasn't Juno that broke that. We were still down from that 95th percentile level. But they said, hmm, Juno seems to be uh, admitting what they're doing and saying, we're going to provide you some money um, outside of the cap on, on what local governments can spend. Um, and, and so for some reason, they chose the district that wasn't at risk of breaking the disparity test, and they sent a letter saying, um, you're in trouble. But here's the thing they did at the same time. Now, this part is a good idea. The Department of, of Education, the State Department, went to the feds and said, you're, you're measuring this wrong. You shouldn't look at school bus costs, because school bus costs are specific to the districts in a certain way that doesn't count for your disparity test. You don't educate a kid on a school bus. Right, You move them safely to and from school, but that's not education money. And the feds agreed. They said, you're right, we're going to take that out. So you don't break the disparity test after all, you're okay. And they said that the year after, and they said that the year after. And then the Department of Education said, okay, we're in the clear. And then they sent this letter to Juno. If this doesn't make sense to you, Jordan, congratulations. It doesn't make sense at all. Here's the most amazing thing of all of it, right? When you look at the rules that the Alaska Department of Education has to make sure we don't break that disparity test, they are very clear that local money that goes into the operating account counts. And they've got a whole chart of accounts about you must do your books this way. And what they're objecting to now is money that does not go into the operating account under their own rules and regulations. This doesn't break the rules. And they're sending nasty letters to Juno. And I'm, <clears throat> well, I'm a little grumpy about it. I was going to say, I can see you are frustrated about them. I'll, I'll use the very much radio appropriate terms. I can see you are frustrated about them. And it, and it does raise concerns because when you do see the, a district following the rules and regulations that are put in place and then is told, hey, you're in trouble for doing specifically what you were told to do, it does get that fervor going. It gets people riled up. It does. But, you know, here, let, me, let me just come back to the most essential principle. The reason this thing exists, this disparity rule, is so that you don't have districts where everything is gold-plated, glittery, and, and fabulous, and districts where you've got, you know, the pot-bellied stove in the corner in a one-room schoolhouse. You've got to, to have, a little, have skin in everybody's game to make sure everybody's kids get educated. You know how you 
prevent that disparity, you invest in the poorest districts. You know what the legislature did this year, Jordan? We invested in districts statewide with money that was going to flow like it was in the BSA and take care of the poorest districts in this state so we didn't have this kind of disparity and the governor vetoed half of it. We wouldn't have had this problem if the governor had signed the money and we could have actually taken care of educating kids in the poorest districts in the state. That's why his department feels any kind of pinch at all and they're handling it in bizarre ways. Gotcha. Now, I will advise, maybe don't bang on my table. Sorry about I that. Can, I can see that in my audio, so just keep that in mind. And it'll be in, I'm going to be keeping tabs on it, especially from the school district's perspective. I'm going to be keeping an eye on what's going on there. Now, I, there is one more topic related to the, the Department of Education that I wanted to hit, because we don't have too much time left, which was, as I'm sure you saw, there was the, a meeting last week discussing about a proposal to bar transgender girls from participating in high school sports teams. And they did choose to delay action on that. I haven't seen any more movement on that since that public comment period. But I did want to ask you about that, considering you and I do talk about education quite frequently. I mean, even this half of the show is evident of that. Sure, sure. I'm, I'm glad they took some delay in that. I hope that the board thinks, thinks hard about that. Um, there is no history of girls getting hurt in girls' sports by trans girls participating. There is no history of competitive girls in anywhere in Alaska getting aced out, losing championships, losing chances to go to state because there was a trans girl in their sports. What we know, Jordan, is that participating in sports and other activities is phenomenally good for young people. And you got to remember that trans kids are the most vulnerable, some of the most vulnerable kids we have. Their suicide rates are among the highest anywhere and if we can get them participating in activities those kids get all the benefits which include better mental health and includes lower suicide rates and lower rates of drug use and lower rates of just about everything we're trying to avoid because it's good for kids to compete it's good for kids to learn how to win and lose and if you're not actually solving any kind of a problem if nobody's getting hurt and there's nothing unfair happening then what are you doing when you ice those kids out of participation? Who, what kind of damage do we end up doing? Now, if the state board was to try and decide on some physical characteristic about actual risk of harm, we would have a much more difficult in-depth conversation. A straight-up ban doesn't make any sense. And it's also almost impossible to implement, right? Because those kids have a right to privacy. And my daughters, who are now out of high school, have a right to privacy. When they were in high school, looking at high school activities, what kind of information was I going to have to provide about my kids? That's none of a school district and certainly none of the Board of Education of the state of Alaska's business. It's, it's, it's an ugly um, situation. And everybody wants fair competition, and everybody absolutely everybody wants our kids to be safe when they're competing in physical endeavors, right? We have to protect that. There are ways we can do that that are smart. Banning trans girls, outright bans, doesn't do that. It's going after a boogeyman under the bed that doesn't exist. And it's going to do a lot, a lot of harm to some very vulnerable young people. So I have urged, and I'll continue to urge the state board to, to 
I appreciate their step back. They need to think real hard about this. Um, outright bans uh, probably violate the Constitution, and they're really bad for kids. Gosh, well, thank you, Senator, for giving me your thoughts on that. We are out of time for the show, but I do like to thank you for coming on and chatting with me today. Hey, thanks, Jordan, for having me on, and thanks, everybody, for listening. All righty. You've been listening to Action Line on KINY.